Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. And welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. It is my pleasure today to be sitting in the offices of Paul Tustane. Paul is a is an, a, an accomplished entrepreneur, a writer, and a statistician. He runs Bullion Vault, uh, the online gold storage service. And Paul is normally very sober and measured um, in his analysis of what's going on in the world, much more than than many other people. But he put out a report uh, at the end of last year called Printing Money for Beginners, Brackets and Experts. And I suppose we should start with that statistic um, about the, the current government money printing situation, if I can call it that. And then from there, let's, let's talk about the, the, the sovereign debt market and, and uh, the situation that it's in. Well, the, de- uh, the, um, the statistic which we started with uh, I think was the one with um, we're talking about the rate at which money is being printed specifically by the British government and uh, it turns out that just to fund their budget deficit which is on a very similar scale to the United States um, the British government is printing £16 per working person per day in the United States it's $25 per working person per day and I find that a very very difficult thing to get my head around that's so that's eighty pounds per working person per week. That's and and working people is about forty five to fifty percent of the population. It's, it's about that, yes. Yeah. So if you if you allow for all the part time workers, you come up with a figure in the UK of twenty five million people. Um, so if you if you think of those people in a, every week, there's eighty pounds being printed for them in a month. It's three hundred and twenty pounds, give or take. That money goes into our economy, generally speaking, via the public sector. It spins around for a few short weeks and it ends up in the hands of savers because it's got nowhere else to go. And then they reprint some more and so this stuff is continually being created and pumped around the economy. But it does, it, it ends up with savers and savers are, are pushed for things to buy and they buy all sorts of assets, that's what they're interested in. And of course one of the things many savers are forced to buy now is sovereign bonds. Your pension fund probably is forced to buy sovereign bonds. The latest device from government, which is called the, um, the National Employment Savings Trust, is, if you look at it in even vaguely good glasses, and it brings it into focus, you'll see that it's a thinly disguised vi- uh, device um, to encourage, uh, or basically to put another 3% of every person's wages in this country into government bonds. Um, it's an extraordinary thing, but there are five funds sitting under the National Employment Savings Trust. Uh, one of them is called High Risk, and the other four are essentially devices to sell more gilts for the British government. And that's where your savings, there's going to be a new 3% deduction from your, um, from your pay packet 
and that's going to be put into one of those four things, unless you're very proactive and actually manage to move it on to somewhere else, which of course most people won't be, because it's targeted at the people who are less proactive about pensions. Sorry, well, I got off into a bit of a... No, 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 the, it's, the, it's the, absolutely the, fine. The, the, I was, I was looking at you with wide eyes, because it just, it just has loads of alarm bells going off. Everything, everything is... Look, when just standing back, it sort of looks to me that everything is programmed to pump up the sovereign debt market with ever more demand. So you've got a government. The government's cash requirement just for the budget deficit is currently £300 million a day. So that's where you get your £16 per working person per day. Aside from that, because the government's already borrowed £1.2 trillion, which it's got to pay back over a period of about 20 years, which is patting itself on the back, well, that works out at another £12 per person working person per day. So, in a sense, this sort of monetary creation just goes on and on at this extraordinary rate. Uh, if the government finds it difficult to fund itself at this, this rate, which is now about £550 million a day, if it finds it difficult to get that funding, what we're starting to look at is a potential hyperinflationary scenario. Why would, why would you lend... I don't understand why anybody lends money to the government. I really don't. I mean, all crises, all these financial crises, seem to have at their heart a major sovereign default, one after the other. They have that. They always seem to have a sort of hyperinflationary blow-off at the end. All hyperinflation requires is is for savers to decide that this particular form of um, wealth store is no longer fit for its purpose. And if you've got the guys who control the printing press with uh, a debt of £1.2 trillion and the requirement to either print somewhere, call it, I don't know, if you take a mixture of the debt and the, and the deficit, it's going to come around somewhere around 20, 25 pounds per day, um, then it seems to me, you know, you're, <laughs> we're all skating on very thin ice. I once uh, wrote an article for Money Week that um, the, 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 the bit that I wrote, this particular bit was cut, but I put forward the notion that buying government bonds is actually an immoral investment uh, I put forward, you know, you never heard, you, ne- you hear about ethical investments, but you never hear about government bonds being considered unethical. But I think, in many ways, they are because of what governments do with the money. Strangely, I I would have no problem on the ethics of any sort of borrowing, which was predicated on uh, building capital infrastructure. So, where you spend money in order to save money in the future. That's a, a, a legitimate form of expense. Why would we go on spending, let's say, £500 a week if by buying a machine we could get the same job done for £200 a week? So we borrow the money to buy the machine. That all makes perfect sense to me. And it's the same with government borrowing. If the government's borrowing to build infrastructure like roads, which is going to pay us back through a more efficient economy in the future, do you know what? I'm happy with that. But I'm less happy when they're borrowing to... Uh, pour it into a very deep hole of um, ongoing expenses. I'm going to throw a, uh, a statistic at you, Paul, and um, if it throws you, we'll move on to the next question. But we recently had a guest on here, uh, Ben Dyson, uh, who argues that 97% of money that is created is created not by government, but by banks. Is that a statistic you've ever come across? And if so, how does it tie in with your uh, money printing scenario that you've just described? 
Well, that's a very interesting point because the article I wrote about last year um, certainly points the finger at banks who create money. So it's all about, you know, it is banks that create money. It's not government that creates money. It's banks that create money. And actually it's sort of legitimate in a funny way. If I had a property portfolio uh, worth ten million pounds and I'd paid everything up and I was completely flat at the bank. Yeah. And I then had another a business idea which needed a million pounds of finance and I went to the bank. So currently there's no money in existence at all. I've spent my money. I've got my mm-hmm. ten million pound property portfolio. I go to the bank and I say, brilliant, brilliant business idea. Um, I'd like to borrow a million pounds to set it up. I'm going to give you as collateral my £10 million property portfolio. Now, I think the bank's being smart when it lends me that money. It might take a view on the quality of my business proposition, but I think it's being quite smart when it lends me that money at 3 or 5 or 7 or whatever it is percent. The, the key thing about money creation in a privately-oriented economy is that it should be up to the bank and the borrower as to whether or not that money should be lent. And the key criteria for allowing it should be the quality of the collateral. That's absolutely essential. If I have that collateral, I'm not sure that there's any real harm in creating money for that purpose. Because all money is really doing here, money is operating as as an exchangeable form of wealth. So if we start with wealth, which in this example I gave you was, was property portfolio, and then we convert some of it into money, which is just credit on a bank account, then that's a- actually okay. If you follow if, uh, what the article, what my article did, the one you very mm-hmm. kindly mentioned earlier on, it followed the bookkeeping through from money creation to how that money filters its way round to the central bank. And when the central banks got it, in the old-fashioned world, the central bank would have been in position to close down the bank that lent that money if it wasn't able to repay it to the central bank. Now, that bank that lent the money is perfectly able to pay the money back, provided my collateral was sound, because it can force me to sell my collateral. Yeah. Now, that sort of money creation is the natural sort of oscillation between paid-up property and collateralized property. It happens as a result of businessmen saying, I want to put my paid-up property back into circulation. That's private money creation. And as far as I can work out... That's actually legitimate. It's not government creating money. It's private banks creating money, converting property yeah, into I mean, money. It, it, so means, it means that, that money is related to actual tangible assets and existing and savers, basically. Absolutely. Money is related to property. So you have property. You can convert some of that with the help of a bank into an exchangeable form of wealth with which you can undertake projects such as businesses and other things. Some of us like to hold all our property in fully paid up houses or, or, or gold bars. Yeah. We like all sorts of different things. But sometimes we want to actually get economically active and an exchangeable form of wealth is a sensible thing to do it with and the, and the enablers of that appear to be the banks. But not all money is created in such a legitimate way. And this is the problem. So what happens is, I, I think this system works well, private money creation works well, through the banks until you get to the stage where the central bank will not close down an egregious money creator. So if you look at a business like the Royal Bank of Scotland five years ago, their balance sheet, they became, they had the biggest balance sheet of any bank in the world, of any company 
in the world. Their balance sheet was over a trillion pounds sterling, so it was as big as the British economy. What that effectively means is that hundreds of private uh, individuals all over the place were building properties in Ireland or wherever it might be, or yeah. places that had these these property booms. Hundreds of people were going there and saying to the, the Royal Bank Scotland, lend me the money, I'll give you some collateral, it'll be these buildings that I'm putting up. And, um, and so the, the balance sheet expanded as this money was created. Now that all works very well, as long as the houses that were put up could be sold to redeem to the Royal Bank of Scotland and thence back through the clearing system to the Bank of England, the, the huge overdraft, which, in, which as a result of all this money creation, the Royal Bank of Scotland had created for themselves at the Bank of England. Because what happens is, you, know, you give all this money to people to go and build houses, they go shopping, that debt gets passed through the banking system, it's all a call on the Royal Bank of Scotland, but these days we have a central bank which just will not shut down any private banking institution. So that creates a system where anyone can just create money with impunity. I mean, I so think this that's is actually what gets, they want, this isn't is, it? Well, I think you're right. I think, um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's a, but it's a, it's a political corruption of a perfectly satisfactory private business arrangement. So, in the days, bef- in the in the old days, when the central bank would have would have wandered into one of our commercial banks and said, "Sorry, you know, you, you owe us five hundred million pounds. Uh, you can't pay. We're shutting you down. We're liquidating your portfolio of assets because we need to be paid back." Now, that's, that was a, a very, very strong controlling force on the last generation's Royal Bank of Scotland. But it's not there anymore. So, uh, so and this is, this is the difficulty. So if the political will to shut banks has evaporated, then the banks can go on extending their balance sheets indefinitely. So you end up with a situation where the Bank of England will have an enormous balance. If you, uh, I'm sure you've seen the stats. The Bank of England's balance sheet has expanded about fourfold since 2007. Now, we're told that we're living through a deflation. That's a mighty strange deflation. The Bank of England's balance sheet has expanded fourfold since this deflationary period started. Now, what that really means is the Bank of England is not prepared to shut down the banks that have overdrawn their resources with the Bank of England. So instead of having a balance book, what the Bank of England has is a few successful banks who've got a big credit balance, which the Bank of England owes to them, and then a few unsuccessful banks where the Bank of England has become a massive depositor. Its money is at those banks, and then there's a huge bucket of collateral which those banks Mm -hmm. owe back to the Bank of England, and now we're back to go full circle. What is that collateral? Where has it come from? That collateral, more and more, is tick the regulatory box collateral that's issued by the government in order that the Royal Bank of Scotland or whomever can present this collateral to whoever they owe large amounts of money to. And the regulator goes to, oh, that's Bank of England, that's sovereign debt. We'll give that a big tick in the regulatory box and we'll accept it. I I understand that the the Bank of England is buying something like 50% now of government debt and I looked at some numbers the other day and I think the Bank of England now owns something like 35% of all government debt as well as, as well as as I said buying 50% of new government debt when does all this unravel I know for example if I ask you what the gold price is going to do next week you never answer uh, you're always um, 
cagey about timing and you know timing is the big secret but you suggest in your in your piece that um, we might see some kind of unraveling perhaps in 2014 due to something that's going to take place in 2015 what why don't you explain that to us well uh, well first in terms of general forecasts um so I'm just going to. Uh, this is a general point. Yeah. If you ask me, um, most people when they're asked for a target, a target price for gold at the end of the year or, or silver or whatever else, maybe they, they they say a number, and to me it, it seems a, a strange way of going about some sort of analysis of the future. There's a whole range of possibilities for everything we do, and we have probabilities in different ranges. So that's why I find it very difficult and very pointless to say the target is this, my price in a month's time mm-hmm. is going to be that. Um, so um, on that score, yeah, there's, uh, I'm just, I, timing is very difficult. I would rather say, I mentioned hyperinflation previously, I believe that there might be as much as a 25% chance of a, high, of a hyperinflation in sterling within the next 10 years. Um, we're one of a very, very small number of currencies that hasn't experienced a hyperinflation in the last 250 years, but I do think we're going down the sort of route which increases the risk. Do I say we're going to have a hyperinflation? No, I don't. Do I think the probability is greater than half? No, I think it probably isn't. But do I think it's getting up there? Yeah, 25 to 30%, that may well be true. If it's a 25 to 30% chance of a hyperinflation in 10 years, then a large number of people need to think very carefully about what the current value of a pound is. Because if you put that into your spreadsheets to say it's got a 25% chance of being worth nothing in 10 years, then its net present value is massively less than you might otherwise think. Now, second part of your question, haven't forgotten it, was, um, was about, the, um, was about the, uh, the Bank for International Settlements. What struck me as I was reading the, um, the Bank for International Settlements annual report was that... Why don't you explain what the Bank of International Settlements is? Well, well, the BIS is an international organisation. It's one of the oldest. It's, it sort of sits in parallel with the International Monetary Fund. And the easiest way to think of it is that, is that it's the central bank's central bank. So um, it basically sits above all the currencies and it holds baskets of various different piles of currency. And it allows other central banks... So, for example, it would allow... The German central bank, because they're um, large exporters to the British, cars and the like. So the Germans aggregate large balances of sterling, for example, at the Bank of England. And they can then transmit that off to the Bank for International Settlements. They could choose to have their sterling banked at the BIS if they chose to. So it enables all the central banks to have a bank for all these different currencies. That's sort of what it does. One of the interesting things about the Bank for International Settlement is it has this thing called the special drawing right. And this is sort of a a sort of currency version of Esperanto. So it's a a currency which is actually composed of a mix of four of the Western world's biggest currencies. I include Japan there just from a cultural point of view. Uh, So it's it's the, the yen, the euro, the pound and the dollar in various multiples. And the, the pound, the British pound, is sitting in this pile at about 11% of the special drawing rights value, which is extraordinary for us, because what it basically means is that when we consume foreign goods, 
The surplus currency, which sits in other people's bank accounts, can be held as a foreign currency reserve, parked in the bank for international settlements, where it rematerializes as this rather curious currency called a special drawing right, uh, which is used by the whole world as a major store of foreign currency reserves. Now, we sit in that currency as 11% of its value, but we're currently running at about 2.25% of the world economy. So we're massively overstated in, yeah. that, in that special drawing right. Four now, or five times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't put every no. currency in the world economy no, in the special can't. drawing right, because most of them aren't sufficiently exchangeable. Yeah. But it does raise, for me, a very... I, was just, I read this in the, in the uh, Bank for International Settlements report, and what I found interesting was that, you know, we, I sort of thought about it in the context of the Americans and the, and the Chinese and the Europeans sitting around. They, they, they re-specify the, cons, the constituent currencies of the BIS, uh, of, of the special drawing right, every few years. And it's coming up for re-specification again in January 2015. Now... I just imagine what happens when they sit down and say, well, what should we have? Now, remember, everyone else in the world, they're looking to acquire special drawing rights as a foreign currency reserve. Well, I'm British, and I wouldn't... I mean, no matter where I was in the world, knowing what I know about Britain, I wouldn't be in a huge hurry to have uh, sterling, our currency, in my foreign currency reserve. It seems to me that we're dangerously overvalued for a number of reasons. Our government is heavily in debt and going up further into debt, etc., the things we've just been talking about. Now, if that were the opinion of the, of the, the powers that be that sit in these committees in the international monetary circles of the IMF and the BIS, the big forces that are out there in the world, we know the Americans want to see a weaker uh, renminbi. And we know the Chinese would like to have a bigger slice of the international um, action in terms of uh, the, the power of their own currency. And I don't believe the Europeans are particularly supportive of the British position and, uh, and of Sterling. And I think they've been a little bit irritated watching the relative ease with which we've, we've uh, enjoyed the last 18 months by comparison with the Europeans, because, of course, we can print money and they can't. Now, because of that, three of the big superpowers in terms of world trade, I don't think they have any reason to support uh, the over-allocation of British sterling in the special drawing right. Now, I've, I've no idea if this will become the agenda. There's probably some enormous thing out there which I simply don't understand which stops it being the case. But when I look at those things and when I see the British pound in the SDR at 11%, I think that's tough to justify on the fundamentals as I understand them. So I think what would happen if it, didn't, if it wasn't justified, if other people thought the same and thought, let's knock it back a bit. Well, you can imagine Brazil, Russia, India, China would all like to be there, Canada maybe, Australia. Everybody. They all benefit by having a lower proportion of the SDR held in sterling. But there's one big victim here, and that's us. All our shopping suddenly becomes more expensive. If a large chunk of British pounds get ejected from special drawing rights and sit as a... As a, as a big balance in the Bank for International Settlements accounts. It's going to disperse somehow. That means there's a, there's a supply of pounds for a long time. We've been benefiting from this for a long time. Usually these things have a price to pay. Well, it'll be very interesting to see if, if that happens. And uh, on the one hand, for the sake of my gold and everything else, I kind of hope it does happen. 
But then on the other hand, you know, be careful what you wish for because uh, it could get very nasty in the UK if it does. Well, the, the difficulty with gold, um, a lot of people ask me, people look at short-term price movements. and But I, I like to remind people gold is spectacularly inelastic in supply. The one thing I can predict with some certainty about gold is that around 2,500, 2,600 tonnes will be produced next year, as it was last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that. So it's extraordinarily stable in supply. What, uh, what that means is, if we, if we know exactly how much, if the demand side changes, we're not, we can't suddenly go out and make more gold. It's not like a widget. We can't make more of it. It's still going to be twenty five or twenty six hundred tons that's going to arrive on the market. So if we can't make more of it, something's got to give. What's going to give is price. So what keeps on happening to gold is that when it goes up a bit, it chokes off the demand incredibly quickly. When when people have seen gold go up five, six, eight percent, they think, Oh, I've missed it so they won't buy it. And so what we see here at Bullion Vault um, is is we see a surprisingly stable demand. The numbers of customers that are arriving are the same when it's quiet as when it's busy. Now, I'm, I'm overstating it. But they don't change as much as you would expect. You might think that when gold goes through the roof, we'd be picking up, you know, 500 clients a day. Well, we're not. What happens is when gold goes through the roof, that price spike chokes off demand. So you've got to get, you've got to, to realise that, to, to, to see that the result of that is when gold starts moving quickly, an awful lot of people are going to get left behind. Mm. Very interesting. On that note, Paul, uh, I think uh, we're going to draw today's interview to a close. I want to thank you very much for your time. It's, it really is always a pleasure to, to hear you talk and... Um, like I say, you talk with, 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 with great erudition and insight and eloquence and everything else and clarity. The report is Printing Money for Beginners and Experts. If you type that into Google, will you find it? Or maybe if you type in Bullion Vault, Printing Money for Beginners. and If you type in Printing Money for Beginners and Experts, you will find it. Okay, and I'll put a link anyway on the home page. But, uh, Paul, why don't you give Bullion Vault a plug as, as we finish off? <laughs> Bullion Vault, well, you, I think you all know what we do if you're listening to Dominic. We're, we're uh, uh, just another business that's selling gold as cheaply as we can to as many people as we can. Uh, we've, got, we've got about, uh, I think it's a little over $2 billion worth of assets under management now. We've got 45,000 clients. All we're trying to do is to make it more accessible to more people so that as many people as possible are on the lifeboats. Very good. And the website is bullionvault.com. Paul Tustain, thank you very much. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes.